Hey, I'm really super excited about our new series coming up um, uh, that we're starting here actually today in our book of Nehemiah. I just thought it'd be good for us to, to try to put the book of Nehemiah into, and its events into its proper historical context. I think when we see the full span of ancient Jewish history, we'll be able to better understand what God is teaching us through Nehemiah. and We'll be able to see better God's amazing hand in guiding history. So I hope from today's sermon we'll be challenged by seeing God in his sweeping sovereignty and his amazing grace. See, one of the interesting things about our Bibles is the order that we put the books of the Bible in. So take a moment now, grab your Bibles, and turn to the table of contents page in your Bible. I want you to look at the order of the books of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, as we're going to look at those together. The order of the books of the Bible. The Old Testament is not put together chronologically. Now, most of us all know that, but that's important, very important to understand. Now, chronologically, Genesis is the first book. And chronologically, Malachi is the last book. Or, as I like to say around here, Malachi. It's the, you know, the first Italian prophet. <laughs> Tony Malachi. People didn't know, but that's... But if you started in Genesis in your Bible, wanting to chronologically understand the sovereign word of the, work of the Lord and the people of Israel... You'd have to jump around an awful lot from book to book in different order to try to read it chronologically. The book of Nehemiah in our Bibles is about halfway through the Old Testament. In my Bible, it's almost exactly halfway through the Old Testament. Nehemiah starts on page 360 in my Bible, and Malachi ends on page 735. But when you think chronologically, the book of Nehemiah should be the second to last book, just coming right before Malachi. <coughs> it's so important for us to understand. You see, our Old Testament Bible books are put in a thematic order. First, you have the law. You know, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's also called the Torah or the Pentateuch. Then we have in our thematically put together the 12 books of history. We call it from Joshua through Esther. This section of books is close to being in chronological order within this section. Then you have the five books of wisdom. Job, which is actually a book written in the patriarchal times. Then you have Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Then you have the five major prophets, as we put them together, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And they're roughly in chronological order as well. And then uh, our Bibles, our Old Testament, finishes up with the 12 minor prophets. Again, roughly in chronological order. So we have a total of 39 books in our Old Testament. Now, if you had a Jewish Bible, which of course is just what we call the Old Testament, you would see that they have the exact same books that we do, but they're in a completely different order. Again, they're not arranged chronologically, but thematically. First, you have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Then the second section of the Jewish Bible um, is called the Prophets. And that's broken down into three sections. You have the former prophets, the latter prophets, and then the book of the Twelve. 
And then the third section is called the writings. And it includes what we call our books of wisdom, and then also Ruth and Lamentations and Esther and Daniel and Ezra, Nehemiah. And the, the Jewish Bible ends, their last book of the Bible is Corinthians, excuse me, Chronicles. Our Old Testaments have the exact same uh, content, but they're in different order. So one interesting fact is that if you, if you grabbed a traditional Jewish Bible, even though the content's exactly the same, they only have 24 books in their Old Testament, and we have 39 books in our Old Testament. See, they combine as one book, Samuel, Kings, all the minor prophets are put in one book, Ezra and Nehemiah are combined together as one book, and Chronicles. So my point in saying all of this is to help us understand a little bit more about our Bibles and just to reinforce the truth that our Bibles are not in chronological order. Nehemiah, chronologically, is the second to last book of the whole Old Testament. It's very important for us to understand. It's so helpful as we come to study now Nehemiah. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Bilbo Baggins writes a book. And the title of his book is There and Back Again. That's what I want us to see here this morning. The biblical story of the nation of Israel is a there and back again story. So let's kind of take a sweeping, you know, 3,000 foot view, a broad view of biblical history of Israel from Abraham to Nehemiah. The biblical history of Israel starts with Abraham being called by God around 2100 BC in Genesis chapter 12. He is called by God to leave his homeland, the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the land of the Babylonians. That's where Abraham is from. He was to travel to the promised land, a land that God would show him. When Abraham reached Palestine, Genesis 12:7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And the Old Testament Jewish history ends with Nehemiah. Right? Nehemiah, as we find out there in the first chapter, he's the cupbearer to the king of Babylon. He is, lives in the land of the Babylonians. He'd been taken, uh, he actually grew up there, but they had grown up in captivity. And now he was going from the land of Babylonia back to the promised land to continue to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and restore the lives of God's people. Abraham from Babylon to the promised land to start the history of the Jewish people. Nehemiah from Babylon to the promised land to end the history of the Jewish people as recorded in our Old Testament. There, you see it, right? There and back again. Abraham is called uh, Father Abraham because he is the father, the patriarch, the progenitor, the very first person to be called God's chosen people, the first Jewish people to live in the land of Palestine. God promises Abraham that he would make him a great nation, that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore, like the stars in the sky. But he's already 86 years old, and he has no children to fulfill this promise of God. To have no offspring was devastating for anyone in that day, but for Abraham especially so, because of God's promise to him. 
So Sarah's wife comes up with a plan. She tells Abraham to have children with her servant Hagar. This way, God's promise can be fulfilled, right? We can help God by taking matters into our own hands. Genesis 16 records this story. Abraham thinks it's a great idea. And soon, Hagar has a son named Ishmael. You know, and as always happens when we take God's promises and try to fulfill them in our own way, it eventually all went wrong. The very consequences of which we are still dealing with this day, this decision, as we deal today between the conflict between the Arab people and the Jewish people. See, folks, waiting on God's timing is hard. Having the faith to allow God to supply rather than just rushing ahead with our own plan. That's hard. The Word of God says that God makes all things beautiful in His time. We need to allow God to lead, even if His leading is trying our patience and trying our faith. Well, Sarah can't deal with Hagar, and she ends up sending Hagar and Ishmael away. But God was always going to fulfill his promise, and he does. When Abraham is 100 years old, God tells him that Sarah will have the child to fulfill his promise. In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham about Sarah, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, and kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. And he shall father twelve princesses, and I will make him into a great nation. Ishmael is the forefather of the Arab people. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So through God's promise, through Isaac, comes the covenant offspring of God, the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. Well, then Isaac then grows up, and he has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first, but he sells his birthright to Jacob. And through many twists and turns, Jacob ends up getting the blessings of the firstborn rather than Esau. Jacob becomes the son to carry on the promise of God. Well, then Jacob grows up and through the intrigue of his father-in-law, Laban ends up marrying both Leah and Rachel. And an important moment happens in, to Jacob in Genesis 32. It's where Jacob wrestles with God. And after that encounter with God, God changes Jacob's name. He changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means one who strives with God. So saying the children of Israel is really saying the children of Jacob. The twelve sons of Jacob are the twelve sons of Israel 
And the twelve sons of Israel are the forefathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the twelve tribes of Israel become the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. It's around 1900 B.C. when some of Israel's sons would sell Joseph, the second youngest son, into slavery in Egypt. As horrific as all of that was, soon God uses Joseph in amazing ways. Again, through many twists and turns, Joseph, through God, ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph then rises the second in command of all of Egypt and rescues millions upon millions of people from starvation, from a great drought. And again, through amazing, God-ordained twists and turns, Jacob's whole family ends up moving from the promised land to Egypt, to live in the land of Goshen, to be saved from the famine. That's how the children of Israel end up in Egypt. Well, soon they grow, and they multiply in this land of Goshen, and eventually are taken captive by the Egyptians to be worked as slaves. Some 400 years pass, and then God raises up a deliverer named Moses. The miraculous exodus from Egypt with the ten great plagues begins uh, around 1446 B.C. God has been leading his people for around 600 years from from Abraham to Moses. And just now at Mount Sinai, he institutes the law, the Ten Commandments, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrificial system. This fact is important. It's theologically important. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that the law given to Moses was never instituted to bring about salvation. No one is ever saved by following rules. No one is ever saved by their own efforts or works. No one ever saved by, by the law. See, salvation has always been a gift of faith by God's grace. It was that way for Abraham. Hundreds of years before there was a law. It was that way for Moses under the law. It's that way for us under the law of love in Christ. Salvation reigned before there was the law. Salvation reigned under the law. And now, salvation reigns under the law of love of Christ. Salvation has always been relationship-focused. Salvation is always, by grace, through faith, always. We learn that as we study the history of Israel. Well, within two short years of the children of Israel leaving Egypt... They're ready to enter the promised land. Numbers 13 and 14 tell us that they send 12 spies into the promised land to get the lay of the land. The story goes in Numbers 13, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. So instead of believing God and by faith going to to take possession of the promised land, even though they had seen God do all these miraculous things for them, rescuing them, From the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. The people say in Numbers 14. 
Then all the congregation raised a loud voice, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones, will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us, consu- let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Well, then as punishment for the disbelief, God makes them wander through the wilderness another 38 years for a total of 40 years until the generation of all those who complained and refused to enter the land were passed. You see, sometimes God wants us to take new lands to forge into new frontiers as individuals, as families, as a church. And sometimes we have to do that, not from all the evidence that's in front of us. We have to do that because God told us to do that. And we do it on faith. They thought it was better to to forego God's plan of the promised land and to go back into slavery all from their lack of faith in what God could do. Perhaps God's calling you to venture out in your faith. Don't hold back. Don't shrink back into the comfortable past. Step out on faith in God, even if you can't see for sure. All the way perfectly, step out and believe. And like Caleb said, let us go up at once. And occupy it. Believe God. Well, finally, in 1406 B.C., Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. They believe God, and they go in and conquer the land. Well, next follows 400 years of the rule of the judges. The story of Ruth happens during this time. It's a time when God is supposed to be their king, when God is supposed to rule the nation. If they are faithful to God, then God will be faithful to them and give them peace. But what ends up happening instead is what's called the cycle of sin in the book of Judges. It starts off with Israel at peace. But then Israel turns from God and serves the idols, other so-called gods of the other nations. Then God starts to bring them back to him by allowing them to be oppressed by by a surrounding nation, that they are overcome and they are enslaved. And then they cry out to God in repentance, asking for deliverance. And then God raises up a judge, a national deliverer, who delivers them from this oppressive enemy. Then the nation is delivered and is free again and is at peace. But then the cycle starts all over again. This same pattern happens six times. In the book of Judges. You know what it makes me think of? Don't we have a great God? What a great God. What an amazing God of grace and forgiveness. Our God is the amazing God of second chances. And second chances. And more second chances. See, perhaps today you have fallen into a cycle of sin that besets you. Is God rejecting you? Is God done with you? 
No, God is going to do whatever means necessary to draw you back to him. He is offering to you his amazing grace, his second chance upon second chance upon second chance because he loves you. Well, Samuel is the last judge of Israel. And in the first book of Samuel, where uh, the people of Israel consolidate uh, their tribes under one nation, under the rule of one man as their king, rather than continuing under the rule of God as their king. So Saul is chosen as the first king of the 12 tribes of Israel, of the United Kingdom of Israel, at about 1050 B.C. Because of Saul's disobedience to God, his kingship was taken away from him and his family, and it's given to David, a man after God's own heart. And David becomes king around uh, 1010 B.C. And David rules well. The Lord gives him great victories over their enemies, and the borders of the nations are expanded and fortified. And David writes many of the amazing psalms that so touch our hearts, so moving with his expressions of faith and worship in God. King David knows the heights of a man blessed by following God. And King David knows the greatest lows of a man giving into temptation and ruining his reputation. King David's a great leader, used by God to bring strength and success to this united kingdom of Israel. Yet he leads his family so poorly that his son tries a coup to overthrow his kingdom among other sins within his children. See, the way God loves and disciplines David is a great comfort to us. It's a great reminder to all of us. For we're all like David, aren't we? Devoted to God. Yet giving in to temptation. Used by God in amazing ways. Yet failing to serve Him at critical times and critical places in our lives. Over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, what do we see? God's amazing grace, his love, his relationship. Well, upon David's death in 970 B.C., David's son, Solomon, is made king. He's a great ruler. He's strong and he leads this prosperous nation in a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. King David had designed and made all the preparations for the temple But God told David that since he was a man of war, that he could not build it. Because our God is a God of peace. So Solomon builds the first temple of God in Jerusalem. What an amazing, beautiful temple that was. Up until that time, they were still using the tabernacle that was built by Moses, you know, some 400 years earlier. 1 Kings 5-8 through details the magnificence of the tabernacle and the dedication of the temple. Listen to Solomon's benediction on that dedication day of the temple. Solomon says, Now as Solomon finished offering all of his prayers and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with outstretched hands towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people of Israel, according to all that he had promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promises, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God will be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him 
to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, which I have placed before God, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your hearts, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments as at this day. What a glorious day that would have been, full of worship and praise and prayer, the dedication of the temple. What amazing blessings would have flowed towards the people of Israel if they could have just continued to walk by faith where God had led them. They just walked in His ways and His commandments. But we soon see that they would instead reject God and they would endure the consequences of the decision. How true is that for us as well? Now we all know that Solomon is a man of great wisdom. He writes the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. Solomon dies in 931 B.C. and his son Rehoboam takes over as king. You know, in 1 Samuel 8, God warns the people of Israel through the prophet Samuel long before they ever had a king that having a king is only going to cause them problems. And now this warning comes true. Instead of the nation going to God as their leader, they're now focused on a man as their leader. And now just days after the death of Solomon, the united kingdom of the twelve tribes of Israel is rent in two. Rehoboam is not wise like his father. And instead of listening to the counsel of his dad's advisors, the aged men with wisdom, he listens to the young men that he had grown up with. So instead of lightening the yoke of his father's taxes and the government conscriptions, he says in 1 Kings 12, just days into his kingship, and the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. Soon, Rehoboam's running for his life to take shelter in Jerusalem. The kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom would have ten tribes, and it would be called Israel. And the southern kingdom, with its capital as Jerusalem, would have two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and be called Judah. It's very, very important to understanding the Old Testament, to understand this event that happened, the dividing of the kingdom of Israel into two parts. It's critically important because for the most part, as you study the prophets, these prophets go and prophesy against either the northern kingdom or to the southern kingdom. To understand Amos or Hosea, you need to know that they were preaching in the northern kingdom. To get a better understanding of Elijah and Elisha and all that they did, you need to know that they ministered in the northern kingdom. You see, from the split of the United Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom never truly followed God. The Northern Kingdom of Israel never had a good king. It never had a king that could meet the biblical standard of what God wanted. 
the kings of Israel, all led the people into idol worship, into gross idolatry. They rejected Jerusalem, the temple, and the sacrifices. They set up their own system in violation of God's word. They were going to do it their way. They were going to do it what seemed best to them. Well, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians and was taken into captivity. Never would it be heard of again. Their way led to destruction. Some 700 years prior to this event, Moses details for us in Deuteronomy chapter 38 the blessings that the people of God will receive if they follow him and keep his commandments and the consequences they will face if they reject God and forsake his commandments. Some verses from Deuteronomy 38 read, The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a whore, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples, where the Lord will lead you away. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The Lord will bring a nation against you far away, and from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. These words became true in the northern kingdom of Israel because of their rebellion against God. The kingdom is gone. Now all that's left of this once great nation are these two tribes, Judah, the southern kingdom. No, they fared better. They held more tightly onto God and they followed his word more closely. Many of the prophets came to preach to the southern kingdom, including Obadiah and Joel and Micah and Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Nahum and Isaiah. They had some good kings that followed God and led the people in following God in wonderful ways like Uzziah and Hezekiah and Josiah. But they also had some very wicked kings that promoted idol worship and brought God's ultimate judgment upon them. One of those kings was Manasseh. You know the story of Manasseh? That he sacrificed his own children to the foreign god, Molech. See, Judah too followed after the ways of the northern kingdom. And the same outcome came from the choices that they made. Consequences for sin is real for them. It's real for us. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire sweeps in, destroying the southern kingdom of Judah and deporting into captivity for 70 years the people of God. The prophet Jeremiah writes during this time of the downfall of Judah. He writes the book of Lamentations, lamenting in his sorrow and grief over the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the people and the nation of Judah. The prophets Daniel and Ezekiel are writing during this time of Captivity. The book of Ezra records the first two returns from captivity to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel leads the first return in 537 B.C. with a focus of rebuilding the temple. Then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah preached during this time, challenging the people to complete the work of the temple. Then comes the story of Queen Esther in 487 B.C., which shows God's sovereign hand of keeping the Jewish people safe while in captivity. Then Ezra leads the second return in 458 B.C. 
and focuses uh, much on the spiritual need in the reform of the people. After all this that we've gone through, we are now finally getting to the time of our story. See, finally now, at the end of Old Testament history, in 445 B.C., we have Nehemiah returning to rebuild the walls, to re-energize the nation, to, to reconstitute a national homeland for God's people. The last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, preaches during the administration of Nehemiah. God's people are back in the promised land. There and back again. Some 1,600 years after Abraham arrived. Some 1,000 years after Moses and the Exodus. Some 500 years after they were great and prosperous, amazing, united kingdom under King David and Solomon. Now they're this meager group, few in number, weak, despised, impoverished, broken, lost, reeling from the devastating consequences of their sin. A shell of a people, struggling to put their lives back together, striving to get some kind of national identity, wrestling you know, with hard labor of trying to get their corporate worship to God back. Well, in this quick view of history, we see God's grace over and over and over again. We see a God of second chances and second chances continually offering to his people the chance to turn their hearts back to him. See, the Old Testament is a book of relationships. Relationship with God and his people. How he loved them. How he forgave them. How he would do whatever it took to bring them back to him. The consequences of the exile were not just a punishment for sins, but were an opportunity to come back in real faith, in a real relationship with God. So it is for us. So it is for us. You see, the difficulties of our life, the hardships of our lives, even the consequences of our own sinful actions are there to drive us back to God. We might have these grand and glorious moments of great prosperity where there is abundance and there is peace. God wants us to come to Him in those moments. And we can have these moments of incredible loss and hardship, the consequences of dealing with our own selfish, sinful behavior. God wants us to come to Him, put Him first, to seek first His kingdom, to hunger and thirst for Him. Every twist and turn of our lives, every single one, is God drawing us to Him in a deeper, more faithful, more dependent love relationship with Him. Every single one orchestrated by the sovereign, loving hand of our God. We serve a great God. Great in His love, great in His second chances, great in His faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we pray now to You. So thankful to see Your hand in the history of Israel, to prepare our hearts and our minds as we study Nehemiah. We see a God who reaches into the 
the consequences and the hardships and the loss of our lives and is drawing us to Him, to You. Lord, today, on this day, may we embrace anew and afresh our God of grace, our God of love and second chances. In his name we pray. Amen.